The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we think about how to reconcile our concerns about safety with our urge to explore distant, dangerous places. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Before we dive into a panel we recorded at Skepticon 2016, we wanted to make a quick announcement. Well, it's actually less of an announcement and more of a help-wanted poster we're taping to the door of our office. We are looking for guest hosts to join our team and help us bring in more diverse voices and points of view. Experience is not required. Enthusiasm, a willingness to cannonball into the deep end, an open mind, and an endless supply of questions are top on our desired list of qualifications. If you never grew out of always saying, but why, we want to hear from you. If you embrace complexity by digging into the details rather than running for simplicity, you might be a perfect fit. If you could listen to experts talk about their work and why they do it for ages, we'd love to listen in too. Now, you've heard us say it before, but I'm going to say it again. This show is a labor of love. We are a dedicated band of volunteers working hard to keep this little podcast running and advertising free. While we wish we had oodles of dollars to pay our guest hosts, heck, even to pay ourselves, we are a volunteer-run show seeking volunteer help. Many hands make light work. The more guest hosts we can bring on board, the more diverse backgrounds and ideas we can include, the stronger our collective voice will be. If you want to try your hand at guest hosting for Science for the People, send us a little sample. Record yourself doing an interview on a science or intersectionally science topic you think would be in our roadhouse. Make it no longer than 10 minutes and send us an MP3 using our Dropbox, which you can access at scienceforthepeople.ca slash volunteer. Don't worry too much about sound quality or editing. Use a Skype call recorder or your phone's voice memo app in a quiet space and send us something rough. What we want to hear is your curiosity and the questions you would ask. Our first round of recruitment starts on Monday, September 5th. So if you're keen, do send in your sample before then. Now, time to hand it over to Desiree Shell and an excellent panel of guests. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to Risk of Going Nowhere. Uh, I'm Desiree Shell, host of Canadian radio show Science for the People, and I'll be your moderator today. So let me introduce our panelists. We have with us Abra Staffan Wiebe. Uh, she spent several years living abroad in India and Africa before marrying a mad scientist and settling down to live and write in Minneapolis. She tends to write dark science fiction, cheerful horror, and modern fairy tales. She has had dozens of short stories appear at publications including Tor.com, Escape Pod, and Odyssey Magazine. This summer, she's also, she's also teaching a class on submitting science fiction and fantasy short stories at the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis. Welcome. Uh, Jim Tegwell writes on science fiction for Mad Art Lab, and he has a master's in philosophy with a thesis on stakeholder ethics. Sarah Prentice writes and hosts a trivia show and cries about astronauts. 
And Rebecca Watson runs the Skeptic Network, which in turn uh, hosts the panel that this track is on. So, if this is going to be uh, a panel about the wonders of space exploration, we should start with our best arguments for why we should be heading off into the black. So, uh, what would you folks tell the skeptical among us? What are the best reasons for exploring inherently dangerous faraway places? Because there's all down here. (laughs) (laughs) I kid. Uh, (laughs) But I think it's a fair point. Uh, You know, if if humanity is going to continue growing and exploring and understanding where we came from and whether or not there's anything out there close to us or even just what else is out there, we are going to need to get out beyond our atmosphere. It has to happen. It's going to happen one day. Who next? Um, I guess I would say kids are inspired by astronauts. It is really, there's a huge sort of change in loss of how uh, science teaching even works with there being no astronaut program. Psychologically, humanity needs big outward-facing goals because otherwise we tend to look inwards and start digging and poking and a big unifying goal is a beautiful thing, and that's something that the space program has in the past and can in the future provide us. On a more practical level, personally, I'm a paranoid, paranoid human being, so I really do not like having all my genetic eggs in one basket where mm-hmm. Earth is a little tiny basket. And even though the actual risk of meteor collision is fairly low and it's reasonably well monitored, there is still that risk. Yeah, you should always back up your information. (laughs) (laughs) Keep your server somewhere else just in case. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, we are a species obsessed with our own significance. And I think not without good reason. And we are all going to be gone. Like, like to the, one day the sun will expand and every bit of human history will disappear except for that which we have fired out of the solar system. Uh, on some faraway journey. Like, we need to write our names in the stars because otherwise we will be forgotten. So obviously none of those arguments are working because NASA is uh, horribly underfunded. Um, so what has changed since the 1950s when we were at the peak of the space race? Why, why don't people seem to care anymore? The race factor, the mm-hmm. competition, and fear of uh, communism. I, I mean, I suppose we are still competing with China, but we're just, I don't know, they just win? I don't know. <laughs> they, they are not currently calling it a war. It was actually considered to be a military objective to get to the moon first because it was seen as the ultimate and higher ground. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> in our government, as soon as you bring up defense objectives, suddenly mm. funding becomes magically <laughs> much more easy to acquire. And that's that's been the case for so much of human history is a lot of scientific advancement is in general driven by the military. You know, a lot of our everyday inventions down to Blu-ray players start as ways of looking for technology to murder people. And so when you talk about scientific goals that don't necessarily have immediate uh, significance to people's everyday lives, it gets harder and harder to sell the American public on it, mm. which is one reason why 
I know a lot of people who are interested in science and want to improve sci- interest in science and science education are starting with things like uh, income inequality mm-hmm. and racial inequality because if we can't fix the problems that are uh, ruining people's lives right now, it's very hard to tell people why they should care about what's happening in another galaxy when they don't know if they're going to have food on the table tomorrow. Yeah. It's not It's not useful. I mean, we don't do space exploration sort of because it's useful. We do it because it's important. Mm-hmm. But I think it's harder. It's, it's deeply harder to convince people of that and to prioritize resources when we have so many problems here. And it's currently not very sexy. It hasn't been sexy for quite Mm. some time, Mm. and that makes it a harder sell. They're working on being sexy again. Mars is very, very sexy. Mm. Space shuttles up and back down, especially when we're having to buy seats from the Russians, not very sexy. I'm just going to just throw this idea out here. Send Justin Trudeau to Mars. <laughs> that would I'm make from Mars Canada. Sexier. We will we will <laughs> sacrifice him for the sake of our space program, which is essentially non-existent, and piggybacks on yours. Um, send Justin Trudeau to Mars. Mars will get so sexy, <laughs> so fast. Well, and this, this is something that I was sort of uh, good-naturedly arguing with Amanda Marka on our panel last night uh, where she was promoting this idea that government will always be able to do what the people want mm-hmm. and will be able to do the right thing. And I pointed out that when it comes to space exploration, they're not. And private industry actually is doing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and private industry is making space travel sexy again. Like the idea that you, random person, could climb into a ship and leave the atmosphere is actually very exciting to people and is helping to capture their imagination again in a way that the government is sort of now struggling to catch up with, uh, which I think is a good thing. I think private industry is starting to drive government interest in space exploration, but it's also showing us some of the dangers of mm. that. Well, it's still not getting a lot of media coverage. There was an, there was an accident, mm-hmm. was there not mm-hmm. a while oh, yeah. back? And it didn't really make the headlines. Yeah. That's, that's what, that really surprised me that it was just like a blip that like mentioned, not like all day. Like if an astronaut died previously, they would run it and run it. And you'd know lots of information. I just Googled his name. Uh, he was, Michael Tyler Ashbury uh, on the Virgin Spaceship Enterprise in October of 2014 in an accident. There were actually uh, three significant commercial starflight disasters in mm-hmm. one year. That time he died, the SpaceX rocket disintegrated, mm-hmm. and orbital scientists and ugh, orbital sciences rocket exploded at liftoff. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that their funding isn't as much dependent on. These are our cherished idols, and if they die, the nation mourns. Their mm-hmm. funding is based on venture capital. Yeah. And business has always been willing to accept casualties in startups. I, just for as an example, one of the major funders is Monsanto, and we all know that they're willing to accept mm-hmm. all kinds of uh, negative side effects to humans as they go. I, I I wonder how much of it though is is due to um, the public's perception of these astronauts as uh, and and these pilots as people who are you know we we when we think of a NASA astronaut we think of a 
mythical person who is a hero and yeah, if they die then it's going to be a huge tragedy while we see the pilots for virgin and other groups as daredevils in a way mm-hmm. and so if they die well that's a chance they took and in a way i kind of wonder if that's not an okay thing mm-hmm. uh, not that we shouldn't mourn every life that's lost in any kind of pursuit but uh, maybe it's a good thing if we're willing to accept certain losses in the pursuit of our interests, our scientific interests. Mm. Well, that's sort of the the basic case of moral hazard too, is that you we we are sort of as as a as a culture, um, and and just the the logical case for it is we are willing to accept that people will die. Um, for the benefit of whatever. So cars is the example we always use when I'm teaching it is, you know, 30 or 40,000 people in North America die every year in car accidents. And there are, there's, there are easy ways to stop car accidents from ever happening, like fatal ones. Rigorously enforce a speed limit of 25 miles an hour. You're like, nope. <laughs> Nope, because the, the, it would drastically affect commerce. It drastically affects freight. Like the, the whole country slows down. You're not going to do it. We just sort of, we're like, we're, we're going to commit to making things as safe as we can and to continuing to make them safer. But in the meantime, there are casualties. Okay. So it is one of the problems. Like it seems like this is a marketing problem at this Mm. point, but. Has there been a change? We're, we're not treating space travel as a grand human endeavor anymore. We are treating it like a business. Mm. So is that part of the, the problem? That kind of language? Because it, most of the, uh, the, the movement forward has been done by private companies. I think the problem has been a split message. Because we've been, and this is my interest in this, this is why I'm on the panel, because I see things in terms of the stories that we're telling. And for a long time, it was the story that we were in a great war, we were on a race to win. And then there was a story of, well, we're just going to keep doing kind of the same things. And then for a while it was, well, we're going to do great things, but we're also doing a business thing. And people were like, well, that's not so great. It's not something we can really look up to. And right now they're actually starting to split that off. There's definitely becoming a commercial side that is massively funded by private venture capitalists and that is privately run and Google and Uber and Monsanto and all those people. I mean, it was, uh, the actual number I believe was, uh, 1.8 billion just in venture capital funding last year, which if you know what the actual NASA budget was, it's, it's doesn't even compare. And NASA is going back to, we're going to go on a long, epic journey. We're going to get to Mars. We're going to do this thing that nobody has ever done before that we're not even entirely sure because it's such a long journey. We have to speed up our propulsion. We have to get everything just perfect because so many things can go wrong. It's a great adventure. It's important to the future of knowing the future of our planet from seeing where Mars has been. This is the narrative they're constructing for it. And you can really see it just splitting off. There's still some interconnectivity, but I really think that the future is going to be commercial for near-Earth expeditions and travel and then back to the old grand vision of far exploration for NASA. Yeah, I I, I think that that makes sense. And I really hope that the commercial 
area spurs more interest in those long-reaching missions of NASA's because, again, it's difficult to inspire people based on something that they can't necessarily uh, relate to their everyday lives. And so while you know, back in the 50s and 60s, people could see the moon and they can, you know, there's not a whole lot going on on TV. You know, they don't, they don't have Twitter, uh, to distract them. So, uh, you know, they can see it. They can understand it. We're going to go to that moon and it's important and it's something we can rally around. But the idea of, well, in several years, <laughs> we're going to have a robot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, doing a specific task on Mars. It's very different. You know, it, it's, it's less exciting. It's less sexy, you know. Uh, but if people are in that time starting to get to the moon themselves, then they can start thinking further afield mm-hmm. and understanding it, grasping it and supporting it in terms of our government do- dollars. Mm. Part of me. Uh, when I think about the narrative, especially around uh, like most of my experiences with American space exploration, uh, it sort of just wishes that that we would commit to making everyone a stakeholder mm. in in this. Like, because we are, but we don't. We're not really aware of it, and it's really tangential. We don't really see ourselves as as contributing to part of the space program or anything like that, um, or benefiting from it. But, I mean, imagine if, if just before he leaves office, President Obama comes on the television. He's just like, oh, this planet, it's f- We are leaving. <laughs> like, where are we going? We are leaving. This party ending. <laughs> well, yeah, and, you know, speaking of this planet being screwed, uh, I would love to see more dollars going to NASA to work on stopping giant rocks from hitting us you know and i think that's a very tangible goal that people could get behind if we had just a few more close flybys which we will (laughs) you know but uh you know so i would be totally happy if nasa gave up on uh sending people anywhere Mm -hmm. and just focused on that leave it to the commercial industry to start shipping people into you know let them make reality shows about sending people to die on mars that's fine you focus (laughs) on keeping the planet running well let's let's do that let's turn it around rather than talking about why we should risk it what what are we risking if we don't yeah well i mean it's 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 a in a way, a zero-sum game when you're talking about dollars and amount of energy you're putting towards something. So every time NASA's focused on putting a person on Mars, that's less uh, energy they have to devote to stopping asteroids from hitting mm-hmm. the Earth, for instance. We risk our significance. Mm-hmm. I mean, we go back to... I don't know, the 17th century where we're a bunch of people wandering around on a tiny stupid ball that's never going to go anywhere. Um, a future without a space program isn't really a future worth having. That was super depressing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you, you consider the iconic image, it's the small blue marble, marble floating in space. I mean, that has been a unifying image for Earth, and we need something like that so that we can see beyond our own horizon. And also, of course, there's the technology benefits that we gain from traveling into space and specifically, hopefully, eventually terraforming that could end up coming back around to save us here on Earth. 
Uh, I don't know if, the, if the, this answers the question, but I want to say that our idealism and our whole that whole feeling that the, that they had in the fifties um, of the nature of humanity in space is something that we constructed, even though we had been like you know I'm sure some people had been looking at the moon before uh, JFK started on it, but uh, like. Time mag when uh, Goddard put together like just rockets can move in space. Time magazine put out an article that called that it is a severe strain in on credulity. People just people would like more so than now in, in the twenties to thirties were just like <laughs> stupid. Don't. Yeah, do you want to die up in in the cold nothingness? Great. Like they just so like it's something. It's an idea that kind of needs to be sold in a certain way, and in a way, it is like there's the um, proud science for just tagging things. Oh, the citizen science, the like citizen science, gal yeah. galaxy zoo, and things yeah, like that. yeah, exactly. There's stuff like that where ordinary people who do feel just those ordinary people, not like everyone, like it. Uh, was when it was a political thing, but do feel like that sense of perspective and that sense of being a part of something. Yeah. So we've we've mentioned sort of risk a number of times, and I'm just you know isn't space travel objectively less risky, more safe than it's ever been before? Like why do we why do we keep talking about risk right now? Because as you said, Sarah. Uh, we were fine throwing people into space and no one, no one had any real concerns about it. It was worth it at one point. Why don't we feel like it's worth it now? Do we not feel like it's worth it? Looking at NASA's budget? Hmm. I, don't I don't think NASA's my... budget is the way it is because of the risk. I think NASA's budget is the way it is because of uh, our politicians' scientific ignorance, because mm -hmm. politicians are still going out there and yelling about wasted money on f fruit fly research. And uh, these are said with a straight face. Politicians in general, unfortunately, in the United States have very little regard for science. And in fact, the people running our uh, science bureaus in the government are climate change deniers. You know, at our at the most fundamental level, our politicians are deeply, deeply ignorant uh, about any kind of science. So I think that's why NASA's budget is low, because politicians don't see the value in going to space, not because they worry about the risk. I think I think it's also I think they worry about the risk. I agree with you, but I think they worry about the risk in the context of PR. Um, you know, the the looking around the room, I bet pretty much everybody in here is old enough to remember the Columbia mm -hmm. uh, tragedy. And like, as a politician, you don't want to be the person who funded that because of the the political fallout. And it is that that sort of risk averseness that comes with needing to get reelected all the time, I think. Mm. Well, and NASA's had a number of major uh, newsworthy snafus. We'll start with the whole 
Is it in meters or is it in yeah. feet? I mean, do you want to create a hero and then trust your hero to somebody that you don't see as being competent, as being a competent general? Do you want to send your soldier into war without a competent general? No, you don't. And so even though this perception is not entirely fair, because, yeah, there have been a number of disasters, but that's kind of an inevitable part mm-hmm. because if you get in a car crash, you might not die. If a piece falls off of your rocket, you're probably going to die because there's much less tolerance for risk and error. And they've been working a lot on redesigning them so that they can actually be damaged without instantly killing everyone inside. Um, But it's a work in progress, and it's still the riskiest way to travel. I Mm. mean, if you you look at the statistics, it's not even close. It's incredibly dangerous. And there's unknown unknowns, like the uh, foam was designed, uh, the foam on Columbia was designed to break up. It was designed to do what it did. And when, like, you know, when, like, they saw the piece of foam hit it and said, oh, that like, that looked like something happened, uh, they said, that's not what it's designed to do. And that, and because of the erosion of safety culture in between, uh, challenger in columbia they just said that's not what it's designed to do and they didn't do even like a simple spacewalk if somebody just went outside and went back in uh well i mean that's a lot of unknowns too because it probably would have uh had a rescue operation that would have bankrupted the entire program but i'm just saying that that's there is risks beyond like the calculated risk because you're doing something uh, that novel. Okay, so if if part of this is a marketing problem, how how would you change the messaging? Like, how are we going to convince, if we wanted to, um, governments and the public to support these kind of endeavors? I'm serious. You have an unlimited supply of money. You want to start a campaign? What what are what are you telling people? I play games of fetch. What? <laughs> you. I mean, everybody, I, I assume lots of people saw The Martian. Um, and you're like, okay, here's a thing I understand. There's something out there that I need to get, whether it's the moon or some person. Um, I, uh, and, and you sort of progressively play further games of fetch by go, by going, oh, well, we put it out there. Now we have to go and get it back. <laughs> So you're you're suggesting we launch Matt Damon to Mars? What I'm suggesting is so so I'm awful at Kerbal Space Program, Uh and my solar system has this sort of Kerbal Belt that I've created, Mm -hmm. and I am continuously attempting to rescue those people. (laughs) And as a result, it's driven innovation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's been a lot of learning. All right. I mean, we're going to sacrifice a lot of actors. <laughs> but I, I agree. I think it's worth it. But the, you could you find that actor. You're like, all right, you know, you're near retirement. Bye, you Bruce could, Willis. You could Good retire luck. into obscurity. <laughs> you're leaving on a jet plane. <laughs> you could be Rocket Man. <laughs> I'm really happy I asked this question. I mean, if you're talking about unlimited money, you know, to, to convince people that this is worthwhile, then... To me, the real answer is to put it all into science education mm-hmm. and solving, you know, fixing that, that, that lower level of Maslow's pyramid mm-hmm. <laughs> for yeah. a huge number of people. Um, you know, shutting off all the lights at night. Mm. So more little kids 
have a chance to go outside and see what the hell we're talking about. You know, light pollution, honestly, I think is a huge deterrent. Mm -hmm. One of the main reasons why we have people growing up with no interest in our space program, because they've never seen the stars. Like, you can go your entire life without ever seeing the Milky Way. Uh, I grew up in the middle of nowheresville, and it... I find it deeply heartbreaking to think of kids born, raised, and living in the city who have never looked up into the sky and seen how incredible it is. So that's what I would do with unlimited funds. Increase that education in general, that love of science. Uh, solve people's base needs that are preventing them from turning their energy toward more intellectual pursuits. And turn off the lights. And related to that, I think just kids like the culture that we have may be the problem of getting everybody behind mars because it's not an individualistic like uh conquering thing like it would be the kind it would be a huge step for humanity but it's not the kind of humanity that we like to think about it's not very john wayne you would have to be like a kind of like ascetics, kind of like a human in a way that I am not a human, that uh, American heroes of movies are not, like, they don't think of others first, they don't operate within limits and, like, these kinds of things, where, like, the life that you would have on Mars would be so many things not valued in our culture. Mm-hmm. It would be for, you'd be living for the cause, you'd be living for other people's dreams, you would not just be doing kind of what you feel like. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's true. And at the same time, I think there are uh, certain qualities of uh, imperialism and uh, frontierism that can be played upon. Mm. Um and and if you will exploit it <laughs> to yes let's people. go to the dark side with this <laughs> one so a propaganda campaign if we have unlimited funds a propaganda campaign is probably one of the more effective things that we could do and one of the strongest motivations for human psychology is the fear of losing something. So you mm. figure out how we can make not getting to Mars us losing something. Ideally, by constructing some sort of phantom opponent that we can all really hate mm. and work to beat somehow by doing this. Mm. Kind of, you know, that may have been how we got to the moon. <laughs> um, ideally, we managed to pull in... Oh, I don't know. Fear of aliens could be a good one. We still have like 15% of people believe... Mm. that there has been actual contact. Something like, I'm pulling that just out of my posterior, but something along those lines. I heard ISIS had a rocket that would get us. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but we need to fight terror on every front. So, yes, something along those lines. And that would be a good way to win over the scared part of the public who is not going to be necessarily interested from a happy exploration standpoint only. And of course, you have that running simultaneously because you, you, you threaten to take away with one hand as you give with the other. And since we all love reality TV shows so much, mm. let's make it something, some big great reward for the astronauts if we send astronauts to Mars. Some great big reward that the most popular one or the one who does best gets and then people can choose their teams and root for which one they want it's pale well, blue brother that's mars one right that's the that's the concept behind the whole 
you know, dummies applying to go die on Mars I'm for just a reality. Saying, but it could work. I say dummies, but at the same time, please do it. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I think it's great. Fine, <laughs> you're all gonna die, but fine. But you know, make them not just great noble heroes that we admire from afar, but make them right. the kind of celebrities that we've grown accustomed to. Mm-hmm. The ones that we like to tear down and pull up and watch in fighting a little bit. And they're all very smart people. I'm sure they could fake it. Mm. <laughs> I would send Kim Kardashian to Mars. I would send Kim Kardashian I to mean, Mars. I mean, yeah, we could. We Zero gravity, baby. Just imagine it. We can combine these, yeah, the fetch and the reality show ideas. I would send Helen Mirren to Mars. And I would How have her. How dare you, sir? No. <laughs> if she wanted to go and she would just do a little like video every day from Mars of like what her day is like. Mm-hmm. The entire world <laughs> wrapped. Helen Mirren, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so we need celebrities, we need competition, and we need enemies mm-hmm. in order to make this work. That's pretty much how human civilization has worked for the past ten thousand years. You guys are right. I rescind my education to make suggestion. people feel good about <laughs> like, their mokamolars. Let's let's not get better. Let's way be off shitty f- further apart. I was way off base. <laughs> I really hope that when we air this program that somebody with a lot of money is yeah. listening because we this needs to be a Bill show. Bill Gates is like, you know what? Forget that mosquito stuff. <laughs> Person with a lot of money, think about this. You could be a literal plutocrat. <laughs> think about it. Okay. Email Desiree. We'll get this thing started. We'll be back with more Science for the People right after this. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Now, I'd like to take some questions, uh, but since there are no mics in the audience, uh, when you ask your question, if I could ask the panelists to rephrase their question into the mic so that uh, the other audience will be able to hear it. All right, who's first? Right over here. So yeah, the question is, you know, maybe uh, people are sympathetic still. Uh, it's just that they're more realistic maybe about the, the deaths that are going to happen in these endeavors. And I think you're right. And I think that it's also combined with the fact that more and more of our lives are being broadcast and we see it more. And so, you know, we become more understanding in a way that, the, well, this stuff happens and I've seen videos of it on YouTube. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, the more of our lives that get broadcast, I think the, uh, you know, I hate to say that people get a better perspective (laughs) of things, but maybe that perspective is closer to reality. Yeah. Anyone else? I mean, right now we are very cynical of our government, of our corporations and of, uh, each other. And it's kind of. It makes sense, like even in our, even our fiction is not idealistic anymore. Like the difference between if, uh, Star Trek and, uh, 
Duncan Jones's moon. Like that, they're on the moon in that, but it's it's not. Well, if you've seen it, or Star Trek the original series and and J.J. J. Abrams Star Trek, even, yeah, like they're very different. Yeah, yeah, and and that, and very and that's kind of reflective of what's going on uh, in the American culture as a lump. Next question, uh, with the beard at the back. The comment was about about whether um, sort of artificial competition in terms of sports would would be good. And I and and first football team to Mars is a great suggestion, but I think then we're missing out on the prospect of space Quidditch. <laughs> so much excitement! If you launch that Kickstarter right now, <laughs> it'll be funded by this audience alone. Two two billion dollars. We're going to Mars, everybody. Yeah, we're- <laughs> grab your brooms. <laughs> The other gentleman with the beard. So his statement is that the moral calculus does not add up because the money would be better spent at home saving people from the very huge problems that we have here as opposed to going to Mars because we are not actually going to be able to go to Mars as an entire species and live there. We're not leaving Earth. That's his basic premise. Yes, that's what I, to sum up. Okay, exploration then. But that the money would be better spent here on Earth. And my answer to that is that we like the high-minded ideals, but currently what is driving the biggest boom in the space industry is uh, capitalism because people are making a profit or expecting to make a profit on the commercial space flight. And that is why they are getting, again, so much investment. And those are from people who are expecting to make a profit. They are not going to put that money. It's, it's the classic idea that the money is not necessarily going to go to better things if it stays here on Earth. Mm. You know? No, we're fixing everything at once. We're fixing everything at once. We're not giving up on anything. Yeah, I mean, colonizing other worlds doesn't necessarily mean picking up and leaving Earth entirely, although it does mean that if something happens, like if an asteroid hits Earth, then, yeah, we have a few more options. Uh, I think that colonization is going to happen one way or the other, um, and not to preserve human genetics. I think that will just be a happy byproduct. I think it's going to happen because of a different area of commercialization of space travel that we haven't touched on, which is asteroid mining, which I think is one of the mm-hmm. biggest potential uh, commercial aspects of uh, getting out there. Um, we're going to have people working on asteroids, mining them. That's going to happen. Um, you know, maybe they'll be mostly robots. Maybe it'll be a moon situation with one clone uh, <laughs> and a bunch of robots. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that that's going to happen. And I do think it's ultimately a good thing because, yeah, we're, we need to, I do think we need to spread out as a human race. I think that exploration is the first step. But I think that what will naturally follow from that is colonization because it's what we do. We're humans. It's how we do. So are you saying then that it doesn't really it, we shouldn't bother trying to convince the public because we're going to be doing this anyway? We should just embrace capitalism. Is that what you're saying, Rebecca? I mean, I do think it's going to happen one way or another. That doesn't mean I don't think that there aren't ways that we can make it happen faster or better, which, again, comes back to fixing a bunch of the problems that people are having right now that are stopping them from looking into the stars and uh, uh yeah education i 
I don't know. So, so I, I don't know that I'd make the case for preserving human genetic material or things like that. Like I, don't, I, don't, I don't know enough about it. Obviously, I think it's a good thing. But I think that one of the things that we talk about, especially with sending out probes and avi- like the first Voyager probe has a sort of little care package in it with information about who we are and we are what we are doing when we do that, even if we're only sending people, you know, the equivalent of six blocks from Earth, is we are trying to preserve our memory. We are trying to build pyramids. My, 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 the other half of my background is in classical archaeology, and pyramids are Egyptian pharaohs shouting in the dark. You know, they, I need to have something of significance when I am gone so that people will know. And the ideal is that, regardless of like, like entropy is a bitch. Mm-hmm. You know, we will be gone, and maybe someone will find us. I I think broadly in in the sort of waste of money thing, like always, these kinds of big challenges drive scientific advancement that is useful everywhere. So when you're trying to do something that you can't do, you make better heart valves, you make better uh, other things, and you have to address sort of issues about sort of uh, social issues um, uh, in sort of imagining a completely different sort of humanity that it would be up for these types of challenges. Uh, That said, um, a lot of... uh, things like the fruit fly things like ocean exploration is similarly driving innovation that is driving um, uh, science into new places and helping people and making things easier or cheaper or possible and extending people's lives and and like uh, that there's crossover from the the hey what's that science fields to the very practical kind of medical field stuff that when somebody just actually that's uh, so yeah interesting side note i saw this and i said huh well that makes sense i guess so between the 1970s and 2010 if you have a graph of non-defense r&d spending Mm. in 1970s you have (laughs) space exploration is up here health is down here Mm. as it goes they cross. So we're actually currently spending more on non-defense R&D than we were before, hmm. but so much of it is being put into health, and so little of it is being put into space. I can't really say that's necessarily a bad percentage because, yes, that needs funding too, and it's pretty important. But as I said, it's non-defense R&D spending, whereas before it was, it got some of the defense interest, as it were, and we don't have that anymore. But it's also a matter of how long-term the goals that you're looking at are because politicians love things that pay off while they're still in office after they've funded them. And space exploration is usually not going to be one of those things. But health R&D can be. And it can be something that people instantly identify with. So, Y'all don't want to die. Y'all don't want to die, yeah. I'm curious if you think the recent kind of NASA fan movies Mm. 
Hmm. I personally, I th- I think it helps. I think it gets people talking, even when the science isn't spot on. It gets people talking about the science of it, and I think that's one of the reasons why The Martian, particularly, was so gripping for a lot of people, both the book and the film, because it was like, oh, how would that work? You know, and it's it's. I find it really fun to see these films using nearly current day technology you know what what would it take for us to get to mars or to get back from mars or to survive on mars with you know not much more than what we can do now and i think it it helps kickstart a conversation and it gets mostly younger people thinking in more concrete terms as opposed to just sort of an an idea of you know distant space travel with robots and things like that it puts them in that spot and makes them think seriously about the risks and the rewards of space travel i think it's good and i'll be the last word on that (laughs) (laughs) any other questions so the the comment is about uh, hu- humans are horrible, and maybe we shouldn't uh, foist that upon the rest of the universe, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I think is a fair point. Although uh, I have to say I, I've been more convinced by <laughs> the arguments that uh, if there is intelligent life out there, uh, then it's more likely that as soon as we make contact, they'll just wipe us out. <laughs> because why? not uh, <laughs> i remember um, yeah i think he was in a stephen hawking special at one point he said that he, that he sort of to paraphrase him it was it was that the, the it shouldn't be joy at the notion of meeting a, an alien species that's sort of just like us the, it should be fear that we will meet an alien species that is just like us yeah i mean we are sitting here in Minnesota, which is a First Nations word <laughs> in America, and we, we, I think, are all are cognizant of what happens when, like, extreme colonization goes on when you don't acknowledge other people as moral agents. It is unlikely that an intelligent species has risen to be the dominant species on its planet without having a significant amount of, uh, competition i mean you think nature red in tooth and claw i mean we're up at the top of our planet because we're good at reproducing and we are good at wiping other species out essentially at beating them for the ecological niche so i don't necessarily think that we're going to encounter a sweet peaceful agrarian alien nation but i would hope if we did that we have achieved at least some level of ability to look back at past mistakes and decide not to make the same ones again or to ameliorate them to a degree. And now, as a science fiction writer, one of the things that I do is figure out worst-case scenarios, and then Mm -hmm. I make that happen, like, and everything goes wrong, and then we have to work with it. But as a person who likes spaceflight and thinks that meeting aliens would be delightful, I really hope it doesn't go that way. And I think that there are two good cases. So there's there's basically three possibilities. You can divide it up this way. We meet an alien civilization that is less advanced than us, and so we have a technological advantage. We meet an alien civilization that is more advanced than us, and they have basically the ability to wipe us out whenever they want. We meet somebody who's about the same stage that we are. 
If they are much more advanced than us, they have probably traveled around. If there's more than one alien species, they've encountered them. They've figured out some way of getting along or some standard of how you communicate and do things with another alien species. Hopefully it wasn't by wiping them out. If we go out there and we find dead alien cities, I say we should all come back as soon as freaking possible <laughs> and stay very quiet on our planet so that whoever turn wiped them the out lights. doesn't find us. <laughs> yes, turn off the lights. The The situation in the middle is probably the most risky. But who knows? We don't know what we're going to hit until we get out there. Um, since we haven't had anyone come knocking on our door, it's likely that it's either they're so advanced that they have an advanced directive not to interfere, blah, 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 or they're so advanced they just don't care because we're ants on a little tiny piece of their yard, or they're not as advanced as we are, in which case we would have the advantage and hopefully would use it in a kind, gentle, and morally elevated fashion because we all know that's what humans do. <laughs> well, we're getting a lot of experience with the whole uh, mutually assured destruction as problem-solving thing in the, on a lot of fronts. So, And there's also the problem of unintentional harm. Mm. You know, the you mentioned the ant mm. <laughs> issue. You know, we might have already stepped on some, <laughs> some uh, intelligent life. You know, it... Who knows? There, we don't know what we don't know. You know, we could meet intelligent life that is so completely 100% unlike anything we can even understand that, you know, we don't know if they're more technologically advanced or if they mean us harm or if they're just going to step on us because they don't even see us. Question? Or maybe they just want to give us face hugs and that's how they say hello, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> But that, that is a genuine risk. The idea that, uh, that an alien species could be a risk to us in that way. So what I'm saying is that does not help our case, folks, <laughs> at all. Well, and we're coming up against more sort of unknown unknowns. Like we don't know how, we don't have a like unified theory of everything. We don't know how things works and we're coming in, and in doing things we don't know how to do. We're coming up across sort of lots of uh, end everything buttons potentially. Yeah. We should talk about the three body problem now. Anyone? Okay. No. What Too much that? to get into. I have, oh. It's a book, but uh, that that, that sort of deals with the idea of two maybe destructive alien races meeting mm -hmm. and. Uh, individuals in them may be deciding that it's best that we don't meet because we're too destructive and it's an interesting issue but it's too much to go into now <laughs> any other questions so the question is about collaborating with other countries in order to get things done yeah Trudeau that's uh, that's chuck tingle's new book <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we see that, uh, that cooperation across national borders is crucial for other areas of science, mm -hmm. like CERN, uh, for instance. And so I think that you're absolutely right that, you know, and the, and in the Martian, they were absolutely right. You know, we, we need all hands on deck if we're going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge issue that we have to overcome is this idea of these, we've, established these artificial borders that now we're going to have to go past in order to make it <laughs> to to do big things unfortunately i think the uh, i think the competition 
aspect works better than the collaboration. I think that spurs us onwards more. Mm. Yeah, but do we have the resources without uh, without actually cooperating? And maybe the uh, maybe the nineteen fifties type of inspiration and the coming together doesn't and can't work for the people for the people who are young people today and for the people that who are young people who could turn into the adults for whom uh, who could like sort of raise people who would be okay with like sort of living and dying on a space station entirely you know who aren't just kind of like uh of that kind of red meat and Budweiser where that would be seen like outside of your value system to do that. Um, um, there is, there were kids, you know, who were, uh, like American kids with a different kind of more pluralistic, unifying, uh, worldview, uh, that, feel very inspired when this or that, you know, uh, continent has an astronaut. So we want to have the top level messaging be inspiring and the bottom level messaging speaking to people's inner fears. Mm-hmm. I like okay. you. I like you a lot. That's perfect. Uh, right here. So yeah, the, the comment is about an, a, a space Olympics <laughs> where each country sends their own astronauts and then they work together as a, yeah, like the all-star team. And it, it is an idealized version of the Olympics because I will mention that the Olympics usually leave whatever city they're in completely devastated economically. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, so hopefully we wouldn't do that with the space Olympics, but I do like, I like the, uh, I like the concept. <laughs> Yeah, you get competition and cooperation. The I thing love that concerns how deeply me? manipulative this room yeah. has gone. Yeah. <laughs> this brings me joy. The thing that concerns me about the notion of Space Olympics, um, and, and what concerns me about, I mean, real Olympics, except real Olympics don't have sort of real consequences, is, bracketing a conversation about the Olympics, but is that there's there's a way that um, inequalities in various uh, nations are amplified mm. by that. Like the, the notion that you have the resources to train mm. to the level where you can be an Olympic athlete, like that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of money. It takes the, you know, the, just the, the right contacts. There's a lot of um, class issues and, and inequality issues that go into that. So basically what we're actually talking about is a space hunger games. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Back to a lottery. <laughs> or <element>. Eurovision. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's a slightly less deadly <laughs> version. Yeah. Okay. I think we have time for one last question. Who wants it? Nobody wants to be the last question. Oh, everybody wow. wants to be the last question. <laughs> um, lady at the back. <laughs> Okay, the comment is accidental eugenics program. (laughs) Fair point. Fair point. (laughs) I think we're probably done. (laughs) We'll leave it there. Thanks very much to everyone who came out today. Thank you so much. That was a recording from the Skepticon track at Convergence 2016, which took place in Bloomington, Minnesota. 
Thanks to all our wonderful panelists, everyone who showed up to watch it live, and for the organizers of both Skepticon and Convergence who made it all happen. Just before we go, a little signal boost. If you're a Canadian and follow Canadian science news, you may have heard the Government of Canada has launched a review of federal support for fundamental science on June 13th, 2016. The review will be led by an independent advisory panel of Canadian researchers and innovators. Our friends over at Evidence for Democracy are compiling submissions of thoughts and feedback from people exactly like you, dear listener, and will be submitting a synthesis of that feedback to the advisory panel. They want to know what changes would you like to see in Canada's funding of fundamental science? If you want to send in information, comments, or ideas, head on over to evidencefordemocracy.ca and take a few minutes to fill out their form. And since we're signal boosting, here's a little reminder that our show is completely listener supported. It's people like you who are able to do the equivalent of buying us a cup of coffee every month who make our show possible. So if you've got a cup of coffee worth of room in your monthly budget that you'd like to use to keep science for the people up and running through the internet tubes near you, head on over to our Patreon page, which is at patreon.com slash science for the people. And if Patreon isn't your thing, you can also donate to us directly using our PayPal donate option, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca slash donate. You can also help us out by using our Amazon affiliate links when you do your regular shopping on Amazon. Maybe you want to buy one of the books you heard about on a recent episode. Check out the bookshelf section of our website and click through to Amazon to purchase. When you do, we get a little kickback and thanks for the referral, usually around 50 cents. You can also share your love of the show by rating and reviewing our show on iTunes, which doesn't cost anything except a few minutes of your day. Waiting for your next episode to download? Find yourself staring at that download progress bar, willing it to go faster? Sounds like an excellent time to pop onto iTunes and leave a review of one of your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.